You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hi, I'm Alan Webb, Editorial Director of McKinsey Publishing and Editor-in-Chief of the McKinsey Quarterly. I'm in Seattle today and I'm talking with McKinsey Partners Eric Roth, who is based in Shanghai, and Nathan Marston in London. Eric and Nathan are leaders of McKinsey's innovation practice and co-authors with their colleague Mark DeYoung of The Eight Essentials of Innovation, a recent McKinsey Quarterly article that's been one of the quarterly's most widely read articles. Thank you very much both for joining today. Great, Alan. It's, uh, it's terrific to be able to be here. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm glad we had the chance to talk. So, uh, Eric and Nathan, when I hear the word innovation, the first thing that pops into my mind is the image of a light bulb symbolizing a, a flash of insight, you know, an original idea, maybe for a new product or, or service. What is right and what is wrong about equating innovation with that flash of insight? Well, Alan, I think the definition that, that you've just described is probably one shared by the vast majority of people around the world, equating innovation with a specific idea and that idea generally coming to life in the form of a product. Uh, we would say, though, that innovation needs to be much broader in that, in the sense that while ideas are important, the real problem of innovation, particularly as you think about a large organization, is how do you get a consistent stream of initiatives that create incremental value to occur over time? We like to think about the idea of saying, well, what are the combination of products, services, business models in particular, and even process innovations that combined really create a new growth trajectory for a company? And so the definition of innovation linked to just an, a product or an idea is limiting and also way underrepresents the possibility of what innovation can bring to an organization. The other part of it that we should probably note, and, and Nathan I'm sure will have more to say on this, is that we do want to separate invention from innovation. And invention is, in our language, you know, creating a technology or creating uh, something out of a lab or, or a science that doesn't necessarily lead to monetization. Innovation has to create value. Nathan, uh, Eric mentioned large organizations, which often struggle with innovation. And that, that's who you address your article to largely. What is your sense of how big companies are doing these days with regard to innovation? I think big companies are more aware of the need and the urgency for innovation, but I think they still find it very hard. Um, there are some great examples of big companies who got it right, but there are a lot of examples of big companies who are struggling with it. So I'd say that the, the worry and the urgency to do something about this has definitely increased. Um, the success level, not so much yet. They're still working on it. What are the things you see going wrong most frequently? I think uh, one of the big challenges for big companies in innovation is how do you handle risk? So innovation involves an inherent degree of risk. Not everything is going to succeed. So how do you handle the idea that you're going to start things that are not going to succeed? And particularly in big companies, often the challenge is you're conflating portfolio risk, the risk of a project going wrong, with individual risks. So individuals in big organizations feel they have to take personal risks with their career to innovate. And that's dangerous. They feel that's dangerous, and so they're not willing to take that risk. They don't feel it's for handled very well. Um, so then you end up in situations in big corporates where the only innovation is happening from mavericks, people who just don't play by the rules. And that has its own dangers. 
One of the largest, uh, biggest frustrations in large organizations is the CEO can make, and the executives can make an inspiring speech with all the right words, you know, shoot for the moon, uh, whatever it entails, to try to motivate the organization. And then we're in so many conversations where we're sitting with that executive team or that CEO later, and they say, well, we tried it and innovation failed. And we say, well, what do you mean? He said, well, we talked about it. We sent out the communication. We had a, uh, you know, a jam. We, we did crowdsourcing. We did all this stuff, and we generated all these ideas that really didn't amount to much. Um, and we said all the right words, but then the organization never changed. And we would say that that is a, the, probably among the most common, uh, another common failure that we see, because what's missing there, uh, and this is actually one of the first, uh, first lessons in the eight essentials, uh, Aspire, is a linkage between the innovation strategy and sort of objective and the overall corporate strategy. Because in the end of the day, innovation's actually not an idea problem, it's a resource allocation problem. How do you get the best resources to the best, aligned to the best opportunities? And we know from all of our research at McKinsey, large organizations are not good at doing this. And so if the CEO is talking about, let's innovate, let's you know, do, you know, reach for the stars and, and create the next great thing, and that is a communication uh, thematic. The question becomes, well, what has that organization done to reallocate resources to the best ideas? And do they have the processes and the mechanisms and the organization structures in place to turn on an innovation engine that creates this incremental value? So you started talking about the, the eight essentials, and I just want to pause there for a moment and say, what exactly makes these eight priorities so essential? And, and do large, uh, do successful innovators really follow all eight of them? So uh, I'd say the eight essentials uh, are the best view we have based on the research and experience of many years over what makes the difference for innovation. Um, it's fair to say, and uh, you know, Eric will probably not like me telling you this, we started with a number of possible essentials when we started the research. Some of them fell by the wayside when we did the research. Some of the ones we really liked, we just couldn't find the evidence to show that they were actually real. And ideally, it would be nice to have five, not eight, because eight's a lot to remember, or three. But it turns out you seem to need all eight to actually make uh, the evidence work. So um, we have a pretty high degree of confidence that these are really important important things that drive innovation. Um, and what, what I was just say, just what makes them special uh, is that this is inside out research. So all of the other research that we see around the world is outside in. You know, there are the lists that generate the top innovation companies year on, year out. And I think one of the things that got us excited to do something different was we noticed that the same companies are always at the top of the list, right? Uh, Apple, Google, uh, Amazon. And we said, well, wait a minute, you know, we know a little bit about these companies and we know that they innovate in fundamentally different ways. Apple is a very highly vertically integrated uh, or, you know, organism that, that creates everything from the inside, borrowing liberally from existing technologies. Amazon has created a whole set of mechanisms to create the next set of, um, you know, innovation opportunities. So here we have just, you know, very high level, three totally different models, yet they always appear at the top of the same list. So we said just there must be a better way to, to de-average um, what's going on. And that led to the eight essentials, which is, you know, the, as far as we know, the first quantitative research that's inside out from what we think, at least what started as we thought drove innovation, but as Nathan said, we learned through the last four or five years and having done this in a couple hundred companies 
and interviewing over, you know, almost, I think, around 3,000 executives. Yeah, it's worth saying that not all successful innovators have all eight. It's quite difficult to get all eight. It's a hell of a bar to get to. There seems to be clusters of five or six that seem to work well together, and you end up with archetypes of innovators. So you mentioned some of the companies there, Eric. There are archetypes of different types of innovators. So you don't need all of them to be a top innovator. In fact, there is it's possible to be a great innovator without any of them, but that's called being very lucky, which is not a business strategy. Now, on that point, you were able to discern which companies had which uh, essentials firing on all cylinders based on a, you know, a rigorous set of survey-based research. What would you advise the executive who just wants to look around his or her organization and identify where they're strong and where they're weak against some of the essentials? How do you, how do, you do that without uh, a massive survey-based methodology? If you really want to just start the conversation, start with the eight questions. There are eight questions. Each essential has a question. Start with the first one. The first question is, is innovation absolutely critical to your first future growth? And the words absolutely critical are the key words. And I challenge any CEO to look at their managers in the eyes and ask them how much innovation is required for them to make next year's numbers and their numbers in three years, assuming they're still in that position in three years. And I think that question alone, and you know, we've, we've asked it many, many times, is often the most enlightening. Because what we find is, back to the point around aspiration, is that very often than not, the average high-performing manager has submitted a business plan that makes their numbers. Of course they have, that's their job. Why would they submit a plan that doesn't make their numbers? And more often than not, in fact, with a high degree of probability, that plan has a very low percentage of effort and resource going to incremental value creation through innovation. Because if you're in a business that's successful, the odds that you can make your numbers, growth numbers, through things you know how to do today is quite high. And so why, if you're a rational manager, would you take a risk, back to Nathan's original point on risk-taking, on something unknown or uncertain if you have a fair degree of confidence that you, can, you know how to make your numbers without any innovation? And the answer is you wouldn't. The rational manager, unless they're absolutely in love with an idea or an innovation, which does happen, um, is going to you know, design out innovation and, and hope that it's someone else's job. It's not that they're opposed to innovation. It's not that they don't like the idea of innovation. They just don't feel for their particular business, they need it. So it becomes someone else's problem. And this, Alan, to your question of what do we see failure modes, this is another one of the big failure modes, right? Innovation is great. No one's going to disagree with the concept. But um, yeah, I don't need it exactly in my piece of the business. But yes, we should absolutely be doing it somewhere. Are there any other essentials that you would highlight as things that are you know, particularly likely to go wrong, uh, and, and maybe any that you view as uh, force multipliers, if you will, that can, that can really be key leverage points? There's a failure mode in every one of the essentials. And so saying one versus another is probably not the right way to look at it. I would say, though, and, and I I'm, you know, would like Nathan, obviously, get his sense of this, is for me, at least, if you miss on the first one, the others get dramatically harder to do. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, the data and experience suggest that if you don't get aspiration right, everything else is very, very hard, um, with some exceptions, but virtually everything else is hard. If I had to pick one for big corporates, I'd actually say accelerate, which is the ability to actually get ideas and concepts through to the market quickly. 
So typically large companies um, wrap up their innovation processes in a very large degree of bureaucracy and a very high degree of decisions that have to be made. And what happens is it takes time. And in a world where you need to move quickly, every time you take incremental time, you start to be in trouble. And so I think Accelerate is the one I think you see a lot of failure modes. Even companies who have you know, fantastic innovations and eventually get to market and do something good could have been so much better if they'd been there six months earlier. And so I, and, you know, Accelerate for me is a real problem. And the irony in that is that the questions we get often start with mobilize. Because everyone wants to know, how do I mobilize my organization? What's the organization structure? Or pro that should be different. And to Nathan's point, it's not. That's an outcome. The structure should follow the way you want to innovate. And there's not enough time and energy focused on how you take an idea or a concept or a business model and get it to value creation and scaling. And that's all to do with acceleration. And the decision, the way decisions are made in most companies around these types of initiatives, I would suggest is broken. It's just broken. I think you're right. I mean, I, I say this in my occasion when I talk on this publicly, which is a little bit cheeky, but if you were going to design a process to be as hostile to ideas as possible to getting innovation through a process, if you design it to be as difficult as you could, you might end up with something that looks a lot like many corporate innovation processes because there is just so many things working against innovation moving at speed that it becomes you know, very, very difficult. And, and the so, thing that's interesting is, this, you know, as we think about what's required, you know, there needs to be agility, agility in the resource allocation, agility in the way that decisions are made. And agility is a really hard thing for large organizations to achieve. Now, you might say, well, it should be much better in a small organization. And I think we would offer that it is only up to a point. Because in a, in a startup, you hear about agility and how startups are so nimble. But I think in our, in our experience, even the smallest startup becomes as rigid as a large organization once it locks on its first value proposition and customer. Because before that, when it's trying to sort itself out, all of this lean, pivoting, agility, that's helpful, right? You're still trying to figure out what is the business. And quite honestly, any company, big, small, medium size, should be able to do that. But once you get clarity on what it is that's gonna drive that business model, even if you're the smallest startup, you don't wanna be agile and pivoting. You want to be as laser focused on getting to acceleration and scale. And so we actually believe, although we haven't done all the research, that these same eight principles, these essentials, work for small companies as well as large companies. And it's about how do we teach large companies to act small in the right way, and then small companies to act big at the right time. Great. So let's talk a little more about what success looks like. I mean, you talk in the article about the eight essentials adding up to an innovation operating system. And I'm wondering how a company looks and feels differently when that operating system's firing on all cylinders. And are, are there some telltale signs that a company's operating system's working well or that it's broken? Yeah, let's kind of kick this around a bit. It's an interesting question. I mean, so if you walk the halls in a company and you're just like, you feel it's broken, let's say, so what would you be seeing? I think you see things like an over-reliance on very detailed business plans, for instance. You see a lot of people boiling numbers to a level where you know it can't possibly be right, so no one can forecast that accurately, um, because everybody's trying to massage their numbers into a, a field to make the whole thing work, and there's no real degree of flex or uncertainty there. That starts to make me think that something's not quite right. Either 
innovations are going on beneath the hood, you can't see it and it's happening, or actually people are squeezing any risk whatsoever, any innovation out of their numbers so they can control them properly. And that's a worry. Um, and that's not to say that you don't need numbers to run a business because you do. But once you see that level of rigidity, that's to me is a warning sign that something's not quite right in the system. And I'll add another one. I'd say the creation of a chief innovation officer. Now, I had that job uh, at a couple companies, you know, at least one company, for a very large one. And I'll tell you, those jobs are created when the system's broken. Because if the system was able to truly allocate resources across a portfolio of opportunities, you wouldn't need a separate structure to basically functionally intervene to try to drive innovation. And the problem with the CIO position is once it's created, innovation becomes the job of somebody else, particularly the job of the CIO who has a functional alignment against innovation. So um, you say the chief innovation officer is a warning sign. You also say in the article that you looked hard in your research for structural silver bullets and you, and you couldn't find any. What is a CEO to do when someone comes and says, let's set up an innovation center or an incubator or, or, or any one of the common ideas for really jump-starting things? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the lack of a structural silver bullet is a sad thing because that would be delightful if that really existed and that would be just a great outcome. Um, I'm still hopeful, but, you know, I don't think it's going to be there. The, the challenge, I think, if someone says, look, we've got to set up an incubator or we've got to set up a unit, I think what you want to ask is, what is the problem you're trying to solve? What are you, what are you trying to fix? And often, if you can get a real understanding of what the problem is, then you can find ways to fix it that might be structural but might actually be something completely different. So if an executive team asks themselves, what's the problem we're trying to solve, what answers to that would make you say, oh, an innovation center or a chief innovation officer, that's a pretty good idea. And what would make you say that's a lousy idea? Well, in many companies, when we have that question posed to us, and we ask sort of the test question we talked about before, and you know how much growth from innovation is absolutely critical, and the answer is a little bit unclear or not much. And by the way, there are lots of companies out there where the answer is it's not critical. Then we sort of are a bit weary of, well, how successful could any innovation-specific um, organization or activity really be? Because if nobody needs it, Creating it isn't a solution to anything. I would say the best answer to the question, you know, we want to set up an innovation unit. Okay, really? What problem are you trying to solve? The best answer I've heard is because the business we're in is going to be gone in 10 years and we have to create a new business and I need to start catalyzing and changing what we do and how we do it. So I want to start this unit and I want it to take over the company in the next sort of 10 years. So people who have got real foresight and saying, look, I, I can't have my whole business that's incrementally innovative for 20 years, like a capital intensive business. I'm not about to switch the whole, whole culture out overnight, but I know I'm going to have to move my business a long way to a new business model. So I'm going to start small, I'm going to build this unit and eventually it's going to take over the whole thing. There are also more mundane reasons, things like we keep getting blindsided by technologies or we keep getting blindsided by people understanding our customer better than we do. So these are, these are functional gaps to some level where we, you know, we feel that we don't have enough information, we don't have enough foresight. And so you want to collect, you want to create a unit that actually generates more foresight for the business. That's not a bad reason. Um, I'm not sure that's an innovation unit so much as a scouting unit or a customer insight unit, but it's often the start of something quite interesting. And look, these units can be successful. We don't want to pretend that they're all doomed to fail. Um, but 
taking the time to set them up correctly is, is really where the rubber meets the road and all the difference is made. There are companies that have done phenomenal, phenomenal transformations around innovation by setting up the right unit, thinking about the right thematics around communication, making sure the right insights are in place, getting the acceleration correct, uh, as Nathan was talking about earlier, and having the ability to scale things rapidly when, when needed. Um, it is fun to be a part of one of those because you got the CEO and the executive team very clear um, on where they need to go and they pull the rest of the organization along with them and you've got get these great um, marketplaces of ideas bubbling up, terrific mechanisms to resource the right ones, and you know the growth comes. It absolutely comes in terms of incremental value creation. Excellent. Um, I want to come back to Nathan's point about walking the halls in companies. You talked about some of the warning signs you see. What would what would be positive things you see uh, in an organization that's doing well on innovation? Hi, and I've seen this recently, actually. If you see a C-suite officer like COO, CEO, CX, whatever you like, actually getting their hands dirty with a team that's trying to drive some innovation, by which I mean they're not sitting in a room having stuff presented to them, and they're actually engaging with that team, talking about it, exchanging ideas, actually just for a, even a small amount of time being part of that process, that's a great sign. That's a great sign, not just because of the role modeling or the energy, but also because these guys are often very experienced. And so you have someone with tremendous pattern recognition, tremendous understanding often of the business, actually getting involved in trying to set direction and change and tweak an idea. That's an amazing sign. And um, you can see visibly the impact that has on everybody who hears that or sees that in a business is tremendous. Um, so that's a really positive sign. The other thing is when someone will talk to you about failure. So when someone says, oh, we tried this and it didn't go well, but we realized it was this or that that was the problem. And so next time we're going to do it differently. Someone talks to you in that way in a business about a project that went wrong. So they're prepared to talk about it and say, what did they learn from it? That's a very positive sign, I find, because that means they're prepared to deal with the fact that things can go wrong and you learn from them and you move forward. Um, but it's rare if you're in a business and someone will talk to you candidly and without emotion about a project that's failed, a bigger project that's failed. You know, that's not common. Let's come back to the point you made earlier, Eric, about some of today's innovation poster children, Google and Amazon and, and, uh, and the like. Um, your, your work suggests that it's easy to draw the, draw the wrong lessons from companies like that. So, you know, they hear these buzzwords of things that they think work, and oftentimes they may not fully understand, A, how it works in that company, and B, um, what that company actually does to innovate. So let's, I don't want to pick on Google, because Google's a fantastic company, but the reality is the 20% rule that sort of floats around out there, when they, when they use that, it's supported by a pretty significant infrastructure inside that's on their intranet that allows for people to collaborate and interact and share ideas and evaluate them and, 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 and grab capabilities dynamically from parts of the organization that's very unique to Google. Few, if any, other companies in the world have the ability to do that. So if you can take 20% of your time, but yet dynamically associate resources to that 20% of time and, and organically create work groups, well, then that, that might be a good idea. And maybe there's a handful of companies that can do that and have the processes in place, but most don't. 20% of the time applied to an average company just created probably a huge amount of inefficiency um, and, and with very little return. 
Yeah, I think that's well put. Um, put it like this. This is the cherry problem, right? Imagine a cake with a fantastic cherry on top. People are excited about the cherry. So it's the 20% at Google. It's the whatever the latest Apple innovation is. And people see the cherry and they like that. And they forget the reality that you need a cake. And to make a cake, you need an oven. And you need ingredients. And you need to learn how to bake a cake. So before you can put that cherry on your own cake, you need to make your own innovation process, your own innovation operating model. Um, and that's why it's dangerous just to pick the cherry off because a cherry without a cake is useless. Yeah, I mean, the eight essentials basically show us that, you know, and this, the, the data says you have, you know, when you get to seven or more of the essentials, you get this scaling effect in terms of impact, which would suggest that any one-off action is insufficient to have a high-performing innovation engine. All right, well, thank you very much, guys. This was a terrific discussion. Thank you very much, sir. Good to talk to you. Thanks a lot, Alan. A pleasure. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.